right. Ooh. Thanks, everybody. Glad you guys are here this morning. Um, we are starting a new series this morning, obviously called the Radical Reformation. I'll start out telling the, a quick story. <clears throat> I remember it's probably almost 20 years ago now. Um, Tina and I uh, took a trip up to Algoma, Wisconsin. It's where we we lived for uh, about 14 years, but it was the first time we went up, and we were going to kind of pray through and just sort of try to figure out if uh, God was calling us there to play in a church. Uh, and it was the, we'd never been there before. It's in the days before GPS, before smartphones, before all that kind of stuff. It's back when you actually had maps and got directions from people and that kind of thing. And, some of you might need to Google that later to see what that is. But anyway, like, we, so we kind of did this whole thing. We we had talked to some people that live up there and uh, got some directions. It seemed pretty clear cut, pretty straightforward. Take Interstate 43 up across Wisconsin until you hit Highway 42. You take that for about 45 minutes, you end up um, in Algoma. So we thought, oh, we can totally get there. What's the big deal? I don't even, I'm not even sure we had a map. But we're like, that seems easy. And so we, uh, we follow directions. We take Interstate 43. We hop off on Highway 42 and we drove and we drove and we drove and 45 minutes went by and an hour went by and an hour 15 went by. We are still driving. We're out in the middle of nowhere. There's cows and like nothing else, right? I mean, there's just nothing. And we're just driving and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're totally lost. I don't even know what we're doing or how we're getting there or whatever. Finally, I think I think we probably I think I might have broken the cardinal man rule and stopped for directions. <laughs> so as, as it turns out, Highway 42 crosses Interstate 43 twice, about a hundred miles apart from each other. We got off at the first one and been wandering around and, and I'm sharing all that just as we, we eventually got there. Obviously, uh, God called us there. We ended up planting a church. It's a great, great era for us. But I have to say, uh, it, it's one of those times that it just sort of sticks in your memory and you think about it and you think, we were kind of lost and we didn't even know it. <laughs> we were generally heading in the right direction, but uh, we were, we were kind of off course. And, uh, and didn't even know it. And I just was thinking about how many times in life that is the case for us. It's so easy for us to get off track and not even be aware of it. Maybe we've been headed in the right general direction, but we're off course. Like I said, we are starting a new uh, series today uh, called Radical Reformation because uh, on Tuesday, I think it is, whatever, October 31st, isn't that Tuesday? I believe so. Tuesday is actually the 500th anniversary of something that's known as the Reformation, sometimes called the Protestant Reformation. It represents a time in history when the church got off track, so to speak, when Christ followers had sort of uh, wandered away from its foundation in Christ and in his teachings. And as a result, uh, many, many, many people were just sort of wandering around uh, and wandering off course in their faith. They may have still been religious, they might have still been attending church, but they lost their true north, so to speak. They had uh, not built on a solid foundation. And so instead, they had turned to sort of a man-made religion where forgiveness and penance could be purchased for the right price, where life with Christ had been downgraded to sort of a list of rules like do's and don'ts and that kind of stuff. And really, God's grace and his forgiveness and just the message of his, his unbelievable love for us was sort of uh, kind of forgotten or moved to the background. Well, through a series of events, including the invention of the printing press uh, in the, in the mid-1400s, the, the printing and the distribution of the Gutenberg Bible, sort of the first mass-produced Bible, which 
I mean, keep in mind, it had been kind of a sparse thing before that to be able to have access to actually a piece of God's word. And so like this, this all of a sudden there were Bibles that were readily available uh, and that kind of thing. So, so there were a series of all kinds of things like that. Uh, and even just the stuff that was happening in the church in that day, there was a stirring that was sort of going around in the hearts of many leaders and of many people. And uh, it led to this uh, kind of pivotal moment in history Kind of not long after these things started happening, a young scholar and a, and a monk named Martin Luther took 95 theses, right? He took 95 statements about kind of some of the things that, some of the ways that the church had sort of wandered, some of the ways that the church needed to reform or turn around or come back to sort of the, the foundations uh, of the Bible, the foundations of what had been passed down from Jesus himself coming back to the teachings. He took these 95 theses, he nailed them on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, right? Again, October 31st, 1517, started events in motion uh, that led to new churches being started, that led to reform, that led to all kinds of things happening. And this, uh, these new churches, this sort of new movement of God that swept across uh, Europe at the time and eventually around the world, uh, this, this reformation of sorts, primarily known for five sort of themes. Uh, These new churches were characterized by five statements. They're alone statements. They're called the sola statements, if you will. It's the Latin word for alone. And it's it's these, these five things. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, made known by scripture alone, and that we're to live for the glory of God alone. Five statements. We're going to spend the next five weeks sort of unpacking those, talking about them, and saying, like, so what? What does that mean for me? Because at, at this point, I'm sure there are some of us in the room where your eyes are sort of rolling back in your head, and you're thinking, this could be the most boring series we've ever done. I promise it's not going to be history, and not going to be all this kind of stuff. Uh, but you might be asking yourself, why in the world would we take time to sort of go back and talk about these five sort of basic areas of doctrine, these five sort of foundations in the church. And I get it. I'm a pragmatist too in nature. And so here's my answer to this. I think some people will, will throw shade at the Catholic church for this. Like, I can't believe that those, you know, that those people would walk away from some of these kinds of things and they get swept away by all this kind of thing. And some people kind of look down their noses at them. But I have to say, I mean, the reason that this is important to, them, to, to us today is because this isn't just a Catholic church thing. This is a humanity thing because all of us, all of us have the propensity to get off track, don't we? We have the ability, maybe even the bent, to get swept away and sort of make our own man-made religion instead of clinging to the truths of Christ. When things are hard in the Bible or when the teachings of Christ are not in alignment with our lives, so often we, we, we sort of push those things to the side as if, God is wrong, and we're the ones that are right. We ever do that? When culture pushes against us, or when our own desires kind of sweep us away, we're like, you know what, I, this, this would be fun, this would be better from our perspective than what God says. We tend to go with our own and kind of just ignore some of those other teachings of Christ, kind of push those things to the side. And I think as you'll see as we kind of go through this series together, I think all of us are in need of radical reformation. The early, the early reformers, so to speak, the pastors of these early churches used to have kind of a slogan they throw, they throw around like of reformed and always reforming, right? Kind of continually uh, reforming, continuing, con- continually looking to, to God and his truths and Christ and his plan for us and continually letting them do 
uh, letting him do his work in us. Does that make sense? I'm not communicating super well, but you kind of with me on this? And so we're going to take the next five weeks and kind of walk through these uh, five statements today. I want to talk about the, the most uh, primary sort of foundation that we can talk about, and it's, uh, it's this whole issue of, of building our lives on Christ alone, trusting in him alone for life, for salvation, for wisdom, trusting him alone as the authority in our lives, as the leader even in our lives, the God of our lives, the source of authority for everything, Christ alone. We are saved in and through and by Jesus Christ alone. This belief sort of stems all the way back to the first century into the, the Gospels, which, are, which were the first biographies written about Jesus by eyewitnesses, by people that were there and experienced it. Of course, we believe it's God-breathed and stuff as well. But uh, in the Gospel of John, I mean, Jesus himself even, even uh, says this kind of stuff. He, he kind of uh, claims that it's, it's all about him when he says this, John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the only way to the Father. Christ alone, he's saying. In the book of Acts, Peter was testifying before sort of some religious leaders in the high courts in Jerusalem, and they interrogated him because uh, there had been a man that he had prayed for and found healing. And they, they call him into question and say, you know, what gives you the right to heal this guy? By what name, by what authority do you do these things? Are you, are you bringing about this healing? And here's his answer. This is, if you've got your Bibles, you should open it up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be here all day, or you can follow along. There's notes in uh, the Ignite Church app. It's going to follow along there. Um, but we're gonna, I'm going to kind of camp out. I'm going to look at a bunch of different scriptures, but I'm going to keep coming back to this one. These two verses in Acts 4, verses 10 and 12 says this. This is his response to these religious leaders. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He says this. Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's sort of Christ alone, right? Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Healing comes through Christ alone. Redemption is found in Christ alone. The kingdom of God busts into our world and is available to us through Christ alone. This has been sort of a core must-have foundation for the church for its entire history. Now, I know that statements like these, when we start talking about this, it's a countercultural kind of deal. The claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation sounds sort of arrogant and narrow-minded in our culture today. Unfortunately, I have to say there are moments and there are times when Christians can be very much those things, right? We can be arrogant. We can be narrow-minded. We have, at different times throughout our history, uh, have been arrogant uh, towards people and, and judgmental of people that we don't know. We have come to those kinds of conclusions uh, in a self-righteous sort of way. But the church has not confessed salvation in Christ alone for 2,000 years in order to be smug or arrogant or narrow-minded or whatever. We have confessed this belief because we know Christ, because we know that Jesus is unique, because we understand that he is one of a kind. There is no other like him. No other person in human history has the kind of credentials that Jesus has. No one has the healing power that Jesus has shown. He stands alone. Nobody's had the prophetic power or the wisdom or the life, the life and eternity altering teachings that Jesus had. He stands alone. There's nobody like him. If you have questions about that, if you want to dig into that more, I, I would encourage you. Um, a couple years ago, a couple Easter's ago, 
we ended up doing an entire series uh, called the Skeptics Wanted, and we spent a whole bunch of time talking about that. There's a there's an entire message devoted to this to this topic. I'd encourage you on the app or on our website. You can go back and listen to it, get some get some more input if you want to process that a little bit more. But for today's purposes, I want to look at just one thing, one thing that Acts four kind of touches on and highlights as to why Jesus stands alone, why he's significant, why we're even where this whole belief of Christ alone comes from. How does how is he unique? What kind of credentials or credibility does he have that nobody else has? And one thing gets pointed out, so we'll just kind of zoom in there. Acts 4.10, going back again, it says this. It says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This man has been healed. What piece of evidence does Peter uh, use here as he shares with the religious leaders and testifies about who it is that has this kind of power, who it is that can bring this kind of healing? What's the piece of evidence he uses? How does Christ stand alone? Huh? Salvation. Keep going. Somebody did that. He defeated death, right? <laughs> He's like, let's, let's not forget who it is that we're talking about here. Jesus died, and then what happened? He came back to life, right? He defeated the grave. He defeated death. And last time I checked, that's not all that normal, right? <laughs> do, you, do you hear about that happening a lot these days? <laughs> I mean, it sort of puts him in a category all his own. If you and I wanted to, we could take a pilgrimage to Mecca and we could go and visit the tomb of Muhammad because Muhammad died. And what happened when he died? He stayed dead. He stayed dead, didn't he? And what happened? I mean, we could, if you wanted to, if, if, if we could find it, we could go and visit the tomb of Buddha, right? An actual historical figure that lived, right? We could go and visit him because when he died, he stayed dead. Joseph Smith, right, is the founder of Mormonism. You can, I mean, he died and he kind of stayed dead. It's what happens to all of us when we die, right? We die and we're dead, physically, so to speak. We'll, we'll kind of leave it there. But, right, I mean, all of us are going to die. That's kind of the gig. There's only one person in history that died and didn't stay dead. And it's Jesus. It puts him in a category all his own of. I don't know, I sort of go with this. That, you know, if there's somebody that, that, that starts talking about and sharing the way of eternal life, that there is life after death, that you can come back and, and experience a resurrection in your own heart, and they've actually done it, right? They've actually come back from the dead. It kind of makes you stand up and take notice, doesn't it? Oh, you guys are weak. Doesn't it? Right? Like, come on, right? Yeah. You kind of want to keep kind of ought to stand up and take notice. If, if, if somebody can conquer death and then comes back and starts telling you about the way to heaven, it starts talking to you, about, to you about life after death and how you can experience and come back into right relationship with God. He's got unique credentials that make him uniquely qualified in ways that nobody else in human history is qualified to talk about. Heaven, hell, death, life, eternity, forgiveness, God, etc., it's crazy, but that's it puts him in a league all of his own. If Jesus rising from the dead isn't convincing enough, I love this uh, that that uh, First Corinthians kind of tells us puts it this way of like, and it wasn't just like one person in a room that claimed to to uh, see Jesus after he rose from the dead. There's hundreds of them. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you. It's a matter of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That he was buried, and that he was what. Raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Simon, to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. 
No way that's a delusion, right? No way that's happening. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's basically saying, you can go check this out. This is, this is one of the earliest documents that was, that was uh, distributed in the first century, well before the end of the first century. He's saying, go check them out. They're still living. You can go talk to them. Ask, see for yourself. They're still living. And then he goes on and says, uh, then he appeared to James. Now, and then to the apostles and on and on. Uh, to those who were abnormally born like him, he's saying he wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't there, but he's, he's seen later. But I have to say, like, the reason he points out James is, who's James? He's the brother of Jesus. <laughs> he appeared after his resurrection to James, his brother, and James believes. James believes He's the resurrected savior of the world. James, his brother, believes he's God. You think that's a big deal? I always, I always ask this. You've heard me say it before probably. But what would it take for you to convince your brother that you're the savior of the world? That you're God? That you're, you were dead, but now you're alive again? And it's compelling, right? He stands in a league all his own. I mean, I get that exclusivity claims, like Jesus claiming to be the only way, like us saying Christ alone, he's the only hope for life, he's the only hope for salvation. I get that that makes us uncomfortable. I get that it seems a little smug at face value. But it's not narrow-minded, it's not judgmental, it's just true. He stands alone in a league all by himself. No one else in all of history has the same kind of credentials that Jesus has. Nobody else has the authority to say what Jesus says. He's proven it by his resurrection from the dead. His power is at work in us. His power has been displayed and now is available to those of us who are followers of Jesus. And it is through a couple of followers like that that God's power, that Christ's power, Christ alone, his power flowed through them. And as they prayed for this lame man who had not walked before, they prayed that Christ would come and heal him. And he did, and he healed. And he was jumping around the courts, and he's praising God. He's like, all kinds of things are going on. And it raises the, the, you know, kind of the eyebrows of the religious leaders, maybe the hair on the back of the neck of the religious leaders saying, who did that? <laughs> who, who has the kind of power that could save somebody, that could, that could heal them and bring them to life? Like, I, they'd never seen something like this. Who did that? And this is when this is the answer, right? Go back to our, our passage for the day. It says it's by the oops, one more go forward at the end. There you go. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. This man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they must be saved. There's no other. He says Christ alone could have done this. If he's got the power and strength to come back from the dead, he's saying, don't you think he could probably heal a guy who's got a bad leg, got a bum leg? See, think about it. Christ alone is able to do this. All right. So when the reformers and even when uh, Paul and when Peter here in this passage, when they're talking about the writers of the New Testament are talking about these claims of Christ, uh, these claims of saying, man, life is not, I mean, everything is found in Christ alone. I think they're really kind of talking about two primary things. I just want to dig into for a couple minutes. And the first thing that they mean when they say that Christ alone, they're talking about that Christ alone is Savior. Christ alone rescues us. Uh, he saves us from our sin and so much more. He alone is able to rescue us from, 
from all the ways that we've blown it, all the ways that we have turned our backs on God and the sin debt that we owe. He, is, he alone is able to, to rescue us. And this, this whole idea of God, of, of Christ being Savior, is nothing that's new in the New Testament. It's been a primary teaching from the first book of the Bible all the way through uh, to the last book of the Bible. You see it over and over and over. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see the cycle where people end up screwing up. They turn their backs on God. They run away, and they start experiencing the consequences of their sin. And there's, you know, they feel lonely and isolated. Things aren't going well for them, of course, because they're going their own way. And finally, they, they get to the bottom, and they're like, oh, man, God, we've blown it. Would you forgive us? Would you help us? Would you save us? And what happens? does, right? And then you see the upward swing. God forgives them. He restores them. Stuff starts going better in their life, and they, they start following him. And you can see the cycle repeat over and over and over where the living God actually is their salvation. He comes to them again and again and again. It's, it's part of how they understood him. He is God, our Savior. They would say again and again, listen to this Psalm 68. just one of hundreds of places where this is talked about in Scripture. It says, praise be to the Lord. To God our Savior, it's who he is, it's part of his identity, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. And jumping ahead to verse 34 says, proclaim the power of God whose majesty is over Israel, over God's people, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Psalm 68 talks about needing God to save us both daily as well as it's more of an eternal futuristic sort of perspective. And both of them are important points to remember here. Rick Warren is a pastor and an author of Purpose Driven Life. And he makes this kind of those graces. You don't just need a savior because you might die tonight. He says, you and I need a savior because we have to live tomorrow, right? Because, because we need a savior not just in the eternal sense is what he's saying, which we of course need that. But we need somebody to continue saving us today and rescuing us and helping us and strengthening us from all the stuff that you and I hit in our day-to-day -day lives. And it's true. We need both of them. One of the things that really struck me this week is the term that's used here for God our Savior is El Yeshua, meaning God of my salvation, God of our salvation. It's this term Yeshua that means literally salvation, deliverance, and victory. So this is a term that was used many, many times in the Old Testament uh, as God's people learned that he was the one that would save them, that would rescue them, that would come and aid them and deliver them again and again and again. He, would, he was the one that would bring them out of slavery. He's the one that would forgive them. He's the one that would protect them from their enemies. He was the one that would bring victory and deliverance and salvation again and again and again. Fast forward 1,400 years from the time that this is written. And there was a baby that was born. This baby was said to come from God himself. In fact, he was born of a virgin. You might have heard the story, right? Pretty crazy. And this baby, when it came time to name him, was to be given the name Yeshua. Was to be given the name Jesus, right? Which means what? It means God is our salvation. And as this baby grows up, it's obvious that God is with him. It's obvious that God is with him, right? You see it over and over again. He does miracles that nobody else has ever seen. He heals people. He, he teaches as though he knows God personally with authorities. It's jaw-dropping for people. He even raised somebody from the dead. 
amazing. I mean, if you just imagine having somebody among you that's doing this whose name means God is our salvation, and you kind of get to know him and you see his life, and people are amazed. They start believing, you know, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he really is the Savior that has come from God. Maybe he's the God that is with us, the chosen one, the King, the Messiah that's come to set us free. You keep reading through a story, you'll learn that he's this, this God man, the Savior, this Jesus, Yeshua. You see him living a perfect life, even his accusers can't accuse him of sin. Eventually he ends up dying for the sins of the people. Isaiah tells it this way in, in, in verses 50, in chapter 53. Says this, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He really did come to save us. He came to, to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. He paid for our rebellion. He paid for our pride. He paid for our gossip and slander and lies. That look, those words, that hate that's in our hearts, the jealousy, whatever that's kind of come out of our mouths, or maybe even the stuff that's just happening internally. He paid the price for all of those sins. He is the only one that can bring forgiveness, that can bring peace to our souls, that he's the only one that can remove our sins from us and restore us back to God. He's the only one that can offer us a spot in heaven for all eternity and can restore our relationship with, with God to with the way it was always meant to be. Christ alone is able to do this. Like in Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. He is the only one that can bring salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, the only one that can bring salvation for our future, for our journeys. But he's also the only one that can save us and intervene with the authority and the power to save us and rescue us from the stuff we face day to day. He daily bears our burden, the psalmist says. He daily intervenes. He daily answers prayer. He daily shows himself to us as our provider as we, as we entrust our finances to him. He daily blesses us with peace and a sense of his presence as we seek and draw near to him. He busts into human history every day to save and to bring freedom and healing and provision and forgiveness and restoration to comfort those who mourn and to strengthen those that look to him. Friends, our hope and our salvation, the salvation that you and I need to live today, are not really linked to the stock market prices going up. They're not really linked to science or the medical industry finding the cure for whatever you have. They're not really dependent on our ability to, to control everything around us. They aren't hinged on Trump or our government. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? Is that good news? They're not really hinged on those kinds of things. They don't deepen uh, on, or, or depend on how much is in our checkbook. The hope and the salvation that you need in this life and in the next are found in Christ alone, according to the gospel, according to God's book, and according even to our experience of Christ. <laughs> I wonder if there's any of us today that need to be reminded that hope and salvation come from him. I wonder if there's any of us that need to know that because of his work on the cross, because of his death and his resurrection, that you and I can find healing and life in him. That we can, we can experience restoration in our relationship with him and also in our relationships with others. That we can know his power today 
In fact, the Bible tells us the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in those who believe and those who trust and follow. I don't know about you, but that's good news. We need that. We need to remember life, hope, salvation, this life in the next. All comes, and it's not based on us doing our thing and working everything out, making it all. It's based on Christ alone. That's the first thing that means. The second thing that I, I just want to hit on a little bit is that when we talk about this whole idea of Christ alone as the foundation for our lives, it's also talking about Christ not just as Savior, but also as Lord. Lord is sort of a, the churchy word that means he's large and in charge, right? It's, it's, a, it's sort of a churchy word that means he's God. He's powerful. He's holding everything together. He's, he not just, he not only created everything, but he sustains everything. He is, he is powerful and he is, he is the one that is in charge. I was reminded this week as I was studying that after the resurrection, Jesus' followers began to talk about him in a very different kind of way. They didn't simply address him as Jesus after his resurrection, but almost always they refer to him as Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Now that's not just a title uh, that's of respect or something like that. But it reminds us of something different. Unlike their Roman neighbors who were polytheistic, who worshipped all kinds of different gods, the Israelites, the people of God, sort of worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. They talked about it over and over throughout the pages of God's book. There, you know, even uh, when we talk about uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, it actually begins. It comes from a quote from Deuteronomy that says, "The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength." Right? Like, it it kind of reminds us, like, even there, it's, it's it's throughout the pages of Scripture. You see that over and over. There's one God. There's one God. There's only one God, Yahweh. <laughs> The Greek word that was used to translate Yahweh, uh, the, the, the name of God, was the word kurios, which means Lord. And because they, re, they reserved all their worship for the one true God, Yahweh, it meant that there could be only one person who, be, who could be called Lord. There was only one Yahweh. Only, only he could be called Lord. There was only to be one kurios, so to speak. I don't know if when you were a kid, I don't know if you ever played the game, you ever play uh, King of the Mountain? We used to do that all the time, especially uh, when I was a kid, uh, like snow piles and stuff. Do you ever do that? Like where the plow pushes this big pile of snow up or something. And so somebody inevitably, you know, you play with your friends, somebody would inevitably end up on top and be like, I'm the king of the mountain, right? Kind of thing. And that was a cue to everybody else to do what? Knock him off, right? right? So, so be, because there could be only one king of the mountain. If you could go up there and you knocked him off, then who was the king of the mountain? You were, right? Then it was you. And then everybody's after you. They try to knock you off. And then the next player, right, there's, but there could be only one king of the mountain. There could be only one kurios, right? That's what, that's, that's what it's saying here. There can be only one, only one king, only one Lord, Yahweh. When Jesus walked out of the grave, his followers started calling him Kurios. They started calling him Lord. They're making a statement by, by saying that. If you go on in our passage to uh, verse 33, Acts chapter 4, it says, With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see that? It's all throughout the New Testament. This is what the, the early church started calling him. In Acts 7, uh, we're talking about the life of Stephen. Stephen's actually getting stoned at this point. And he looks up to heaven and he, and he prays 
Lord Jesus, right? Receive my spirit. You go on and you can see it in Paul's life in Acts 9, verse 17. It says that Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, who becomes Paul. Uh, he says his brother Saul, the... Okay, you guys, you gotta, you gotta work on this. When I point like that, you gotta say it. He says the Lord. Oh, that's so much better. Thanks. <laughs> the Lord Jesus. He's saying there's a curious. The Lord is saying there is only one God, and it's Him. He's in charge, right? He's He is the. I mean, He's God. He's the one that not even death could defeat Him. He came back from the grave. He is Lord. Paul addresses Jesus as Lord all throughout uh, his letters, all throughout the New Testament. Built into this one word is a previously unthinkable sort of claim that Jesus is the one true God, that he is Lord. He is Yahweh. When these early Christians called him Lord, it wasn't just a doctrinal statement. They weren't just saying, oh, we believe intellectually in this kind of thing. It was a statement about how they were going to live their lives. They were not just calling him God. They were giving him authority over their lives. Because they knew that only Jesus had the power to heal the nations. They knew that only Jesus had the power to restore marriages. They knew that only Jesus had the power to free them and free us from addiction and from sin. Only Jesus has the power to renew us from our brokenness, to, to, to forgive us and to take us to heaven one day with him. Only Jesus can be trusted as Lord, as the leader of your life. We all look to something or someone as Lord. It's kind of the way we're hardwired up. We will, give, we will give something or someone that place of power, that place of control in our lives that will affect how we live, that will affect our decisions, that will affect what we do or don't do. All of us do this kind of thing. I remember uh, Tina and I uh, had invested in a young woman and discipled her, did, did some Bible study stuff with her um, a number of years ago. Uh, she was great. She was a new Christian. Her eyes just lit up for Jesus, right? She was growing. She was opening up God's book for the first time. She was kind of getting to know him and that kind of thing. And I can remember not long after she started, uh, <laughs> I can remember not long after she started uh, getting into the Bible, she kind of came up to me and she said, you know what? I've got a, I got a question for you. The thing is, she said, I've, I've always like kind of um, had an affinity for and been sort of on board with the whole feminist movement. She's like, the, the thing is, there's a lot of things that I read in the Bible that, uh, that sort of go right along with that. And so I'm thinking that in order to really have impact in my life and really to invest my life in the way I want, I want to follow Jesus and I want to, I want to promote the feminist movement. And she's like, is that okay? Can I do those things together? And I, and I get where she was coming from. And I, and, and I was kind of thinking about that and thinking, wait, I mean, despite what you may have heard or what you've been told, right, the Bible actually does say a lot about this kind of stuff, about the, about the value and the significance, even the equality of women. And, and so, like, I, I get what she's saying. There are a lot of things that would lead you um, to, to that uh, conclusion. And yet, what I, what I told her, and, and, and I think what the issue is, is, is uh, I think the problem isn't with feminism. I think the problem in that statement is with the end, right? The problem isn't that feminism is bad or good or whatever. The, it, it's that why, why do we have to say, so I want to follow Jesus and feminism, why, why do we say and? Why do we put something else up there? And my hunch is, if we're honest, it's because we don't trust Jesus with this other thing. It's because we don't think that he's really got it all figured out. We don't really believe in Christ alone. We're believing in Christ plus something else. And I'm not thinking on feminism, by the way. I think we can insert this with anything, but because I think all of us have this temptation in our lives. 
It's like, oh yeah, I want to follow Jesus and I want to keep hold of my own money and kind of use it for how, however I want to. Or I want to do, I want to follow Jesus and I want my career, right? That's going to be, I want to, I want to make it. I want everybody to see me and know I'm successful. I want to have all the fun toys. I want to, I want to follow Jesus and I want everybody to like me and I want to have popular. I want all this kind of stuff. And, and I, like I said, I think the problem is with and because so often when we say Jesus and something else, when it comes to how we're going to live our lives, which one of those two is going to win? My hunch is that it'll be the other. Because if we have to specify, then we're probably saying there's something up here that I don't really trust Jesus with. And I want my own way. I want my own thing. My own heart. And I'll tell you what, friends. Those things, biblically, right, we talk about them, they're idols. They're, they're things that we're putting above God. And life just doesn't work. And anything else is the kurios, is the Lord. Is the, is the primary directive, so to speak, of our lives. Life works best. The only way life really works is with the Lord in his rightful spot in our lives. I can remember um, hearing one time uh, a story, true story. It's by uh, Bob Buford, a uh, guy that was a phenomenally successful businessman um, that had pretty much reached all of his goals by the time he was in his mid-40s. And... Uh, and yet he had this sort of aching discontent in his life. I mean, he had millions of dollars. He started his own company, sold it off. He was phenomenally successful, right? He had all kinds of staff and people that did whatever he wanted. He had a great marriage. He had all the toys and the houses and the cars and the bells and the whistles. And yet he had this strength. So he hired this consultant to come in and uh, said, you know, I'm wrestling with this stuff. Can you kind of help coach me and my wife through this kind of thing? And this, this uh this guy comes in, his name is Mike. He wasn't a Christian, but he had a fabulous Mike. He was an amazing kind of business coach. And so he came in and talked to Bob and Linda, and he said, here's the deal. I want to ask you a single question. He took out a sheet of paper. He sketched a box on it, and he asked him, he said, what's in the box for you? Bob's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And so Mike sort of went on and told him how he had worked with companies like Coca-Cola and kind of ask them the same kind of question, encourage them to decide what was their company, what was their business really all about, what's the one driving force, and he said at that point, they came up um, with this phrase, great taste, they said our company, Coke, we're all about great taste, and that led them to go on and sort of develop a product called New Coke back in the 80s and 90s, remember this, how did New Coke work out by the way? It was a total catastrophe, though. I mean, this, the stock price of Coke and everything else were a total nosedive. The company almost shipwrecked on this whole deal. So they called Mike back and said, what's going on? And he said, your problem is that you put the wrong thing in the box. He said, so what's the main thing, main, mainspring? What's the driving force for which you exist? Well, they went back to the table, kind of worked through a process, and came back. And they said, you know what? I, I really think, I think the, the great taste was a mistake. We're not really primarily about that. It's an American tradition. That's our thing, and that led them to come back to classic Coke and sort of uh, allow them to recover. Mike told a story, and he says to Bob and his wife, he said, he said, here's the thing. He said, I've been around you guys long enough, and I know enough that there's one of two things that's in your box. Either it's Jesus Christ, he says, or it's money, and he drew a dollar sign. And he said, the thing is, you can't have two. You have to decide what's it going to be, what's in your box. There can be only one winner. Bob Wright says, he says, no one had ever put such a significant question to me so directly. 
Instead of sat there stunned by the implications of this decision, Linda appeared no less stunned. I could see a stereotypical of images of pastors and missionaries and monks passing through her. She's, she's thinking, would we have to give up our money? She says, would we have to dress like ministers and their spouses? To which I say, hey, right? Like, what's he getting at? But Bob ends up writing this book called Halftime. It's all about his journey and his question and encouraging other people to try and figure out what's in the box for them. Every person, friends, every person has to decide what's going to be the driving force of their life. What's going to be the Lord? What's going to be the curios of their life? Is it going to be self? Is it going to be pleasure, family, money? Is it going to be your career? Is it going to be popularity? What's it going to be? Or is it going to be Jesus Christ? What the reformers, what the early church, what the disciples, right, are all saying to us, they're screaming, what God's word says, they're all screaming, is life only works, works best when Christ and Christ alone is the Lord of our life. He is the driving force. Why? Because we're made for him. We're made for relationship with him. Our hearts and our lives and our souls are empty without him. And anytime we put something else, anytime we put an idol, in the place of God in our lives as the driving force, it always has consequences and it never delivers the way it promises. There could be only one winner. Let me ask you the question, what's in the box for you? What is the main thing, the mainspring, the driving force for you? What is it that's is it family? We've seen that happen time and time and time again. We're, we're parents especially with kids in that box, and their whole lives are about that. And it works great for a while, right, until kids start growing up and start moving away or start pushing back And parents. And I'll say moms, especially if I can stereotype, have a hard time letting go because their whole lives are focused on this thing, on kids. It's been Jesus and my kids. And all of a sudden there's tension. Stuff started. It can be that can be career guys, women as well, right? This kind of thing is real common for that to be sort of our top thing. Jesus and my career, Jesus and money, Jesus and success, Jesus and whatever. What it comes back to is what is the Lord of your life? There could be only one winner, Christ alone. Friends, only Jesus has the power to heal and save. Only Jesus has the power to restore marriages and relationships. Only Jesus has the power to build and to redeem and to restore and to bring purpose and life and fullness. Only Jesus can, has the power to bring fulfillment, to, to bring freedom from sin and addiction. Only he can make us new. Only he can give us eternal life. Only Jesus has the power to renew us from our brokenness of our lives. Martin Luther said this, and then I'll just kind of wrap up, but Martin Luther uh, said, the life of Christianity is one of possessive pronouns, which all of us non-English speakers scratch our heads and say, but he says it's all about possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Jesus is a savior, or even the savior. He said it's entirely different to say he's my savior and he's my Lord. I don't know where you're at with God today. I'm not sure how he might change you. Maybe if the truth be told, there's been something else you put in that box as Lord. Maybe you've been going your own way, and you've turned your back on him, and you've been just sort of, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, but you've been going your own way. You've been living for something else, and maybe today 
God is just nudging at you or tugging at your heart and saying, you know what? There's something better. There is life. There is hope. There's purpose. There's forgiveness. There's eternity. There's new life. All these things are available to you. If you would take whatever's in this box, you would put, throw it down, right? Confess and say, God, would you forgive me? From this point forward, God, I'm calling out to you. I'm trusting you. Would you come and save me? eternity when you're like, man, here and now there's so much junk going on, there's so much pain, there's so much hardship, there's so, so much struggle, you just need him to bust in today. And if that's you, I just encourage you, would you, would you, would you cry out to him today? Would you go to him first? Say, Jesus, I know that you are a savior. Would you come and bless me? Would you come and intervene? Would you come and live out your will? Would you bring your perfect will to bear in my life? I Sometimes he busts in and he changes the circumstance. Sometimes he just lets us know his presence and his peace and his strength to be able to endure. Right? It's, it, it's the kid. Either way, he brings hope and salvation and life to us. Maybe you're here and you've never really opened up your life to Christ before. And maybe today he's just drawing you in and saying, just open up your heart. Just say, Jesus, would you come and rescue me? Would you come and pay for my sins?